The <coughs> title of this evening's talk is The Liberating Embrace of Anicca, Impermanence. <coughs> and beginning with some words from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was the leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1900s, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in night. It is the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It is the the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from wandering Japanese monk Ryokan, Our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into an empty sky. And from physicist, astronomer, and writer, Adam Frank, who uh, very recently said this, from birth to the unknown moment of our passing, we ride a river of change. And yet in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we exhaust ourselves in an endless search for solidity. We hunger for something that lasts, some idea or principle that rises above time and change. We hunger for certainty. That's a big problem. It might even be the problem, says Adam Frank. A Tibetan monk told me about a place where he grew up in a very isolated area high in the mountains of Tibet where the people have no access to matches and of course there's no electricity or gas for light, warmth, and cooking. So for these necessities of life in this part of the world, a fire is necessary. To start a fire without matches every single day is a project. It takes some time. So the people in this area never completely let their fires go out. Every day, all day, they keep a small fire burning. And at night, they cover it with ashes so that in the morning there's at least a glowing coal or two to start the day. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't save any coals because they're uh, so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. And also when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the next person know that they've finished, really finished. So every night they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing and living with impermanence is an entryway, a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. The only thing that we can really know for sure is the constancy of change. It's the most basic fact of our existence. Nothing lasts, nothing stays the same. So Paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of anicca, impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teaching. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, uh, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India 
at the foot of the Himalayan mountains, which is now known as Nepal, seemingly living the good life. His father and mother were the king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. At Siddhartha's birth, a local uh, wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to be either an exceptionally wise ruler or he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. His parents, in order to keep him on the kingly track, uh, set, about, set about to protect him from encountering suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. <clears throat> My father even had lotus ponds, ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban was silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, among them, and I did not once come down from that palace. But all of this protection and luxury and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, uh, he wanted to go out beyond the palace walls to see what life was like out there. So he asked his good friend, uh, Chana, who was the chariot driver, to take him for a ride through town. His father uh, heard of this and ordered everything and everyone that might cause some disturbance to his son uh, to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. <clears throat> but of course, as we know, um, it's just not possible to have this kind of control over life. Not long after uh, young Siddhartha and Chana were uh, beyond the palace walls, Siddhartha saw a person walking down the road with a great deal of difficulty and covered with oozing sores. And he'd never seen anything quite like this before. And he asked Chana, what is this? What's wrong with this person? And his friend responded, this is a very sick person. We all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Siddhartha had been so protected that he'd never seen uh, such a sick person. So he was quite disturbed by the sight and said, okay, let's go home. And he spent a pretty restless night that night. But the next morning, he wanted to go out again. So they went down the road, and Siddhartha, not too long after they left, noticed someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane, dry, wrinkled skin, thin, wispy hair. He'd never seen anything like this before. What's the matter with this person, he said. Chana responded, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All your friends will get old. Well, young Siddhartha said, okay, let's go back home again. And he spent another restless night. But the next morning he wanted to go out again. And as they got a little closer to town, he saw a group of people that were, who were all dressed in white. And they were crying and they were wailing and carrying a plank above their heads with uh, something on it that was covered with cloth. And Siddhartha said, Siddhartha said, what's this? What's going on here and what are they carrying? And Chana said, this is a funeral procession and they're carrying a dead body. Everyone dies, I'll die. You'll die, your parents will die. Everyone dies. Well, this was disturbing to young Siddhartha and he said, enough for today, let's go home. Well, that night he barely slept, but the next morning it was to go out again. He wanted to go out again. 
not long uh, after they were out, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. And he was walking with a lightness and a grace and a flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said, who's that? And Chana responded, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded, okay, this is enough, let's go home. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, the sights that he saw, the four heavenly messengers as they're called, sickness, old age, death, and a truth seeker, a yogi, struck him very deeply, very profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed, and also by the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. He found himself interested and very powerfully drawn towards what the fourth heavenly messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again, from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of this, this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious that he he or she, too, is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, are to be hor- were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. And he went on, as I noticed this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, and intoxication with life. And the Buddha went on to say, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very clearly and surely the momentary nature of all appearances, the very powerful, direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation, the seed of freedom, lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And again, words from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. 
everything in this world, everything in this universe begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, every experience, every breath, the world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, seems so permanently in place. I received a postcard from a friend that had a beautiful photograph on its front side, some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photo was a really pleasant experience. I turned the card over and uh, this was the explanation on the back side. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So then I turned the card back over to its photo side, and I saw it with a different eye, and yet still with a very pleasurable feeling in viewing a very beautiful photograph. (coughs) The places that we live in often appear and feel as though they've forever been the way they are now, or at least pretty, pretty similar. Our attitude and actions quite often reflect this. I taught uh, Dhamma (coughs) in Israel (coughs) every few years for a period of 10 years or so, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries about whose place it is. And at one point I found out that Jerusalem, which is a city built of rock and built on rock, Jerusalem stone it's called, has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries, completely destroyed and rebuilt. With all the traveling that I've done over the years, I've uh, at times um, uh, looked up into the sky to find uh, stars and star formations that are familiar no matter where I am. It's kind of like meeting (coughs) and seeing old friends uh, anywhere in the world. And in fact, this happened... uh, Uh, recently up here in the mountains in this retreat. The word form implies for us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart constantly and without end. Our world can't be solidly objectified. Our world, internally and externally, isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time we only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. And actually, even more often we forget it, or ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we come to face some degree of disappointment or anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed our appointment with life, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. And we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. So actually, 
much of the time we're practicing permanence. Much of the time we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is, to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and we begin to sense, see, and know more clearly, we discover that actually belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. So a good question you might ask yourself now and then is, how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it all quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experience of body, mind, and heart, when we begin to directly touch, to experientially know the constant rapidity of change from the seeming uh, solid substantiality of form to the smaller, maybe even minute micro-changes in sensations, bodily sensations, to the seeming seeming substantiality of thoughts that fly through the mind. We begin to see this more and more clearly, directly. There's a Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that I'm told is true about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and its components and breaking it all down and finding nothing substantial. And it's said that at one point uh, this physicist went a little bit crazy and he started wearing these huge padded slippers all the time just in case he fell through the floor. Supposedly a true story. I believe it, actually. (laughs) In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear? Why do we resist this perfectly natural phenomena? Change. The beginnings and the endings. The births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without Anicca, there would be no life. From Thich Nhat Hanh. If there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have a grain of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. Looked at from this perspective, Anicca is actually an amazing, natural marvel. The universal movement of the constant change and cycling of all of the life on the planet and the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process. Not getting caught up, not getting lost and sinking in hopes, fears, attachments, and regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume as, for instance, the new life that brings such beauty, joy and delight to us each spring, and the new day or the new life that greets us every single morning 
when we wake up. And from William Blake, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things, our nature as nature? There are many doors, many mirrors for us in our practice, in our life. It said that the Buddha told, said there were 84,000 Dharma doors. So a very practical example related to our meditation practice. You've been sitting for an hour. A degree of stillness and sweetness and tranquility has developed. And it's known. And then the thought comes through, wow, this is really good. I'll just stay here for another hour or more. And then strong bodily pain sensations in the legs start up. Well, maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and and, uh, get through the pain. Put up with it. Tough it out. Find a way to get rid of it. Or maybe try to ignore it. Or somehow pretend it's not there, it's not really there. So that you can meet your preference, meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing. Something solid, substantial. A concept. And something to control. So that you can continue with what you've chosen to do. The set idea that you think will lead to your awakening, sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain with the without mind, meaning a mind not made up, a mind without any preference or any agenda, and maybe even without the concept of pain. You might simply, directly, and intimately connect with just what is, seeing all the varying sensations occurring in your leg and notice them changing and moving, recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame, just being with, seeing sensing and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. The Damador, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. Many years ago, during a three-month retreat that I was sitting at the Insight Meditation Society, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back. It was during the height of autumn color in New England, and I was seeing the ground literally carpeted with rich reds and shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was beautiful. I was quite immersed in this experience. Then, all of a sudden, a knowing came in. Not through thought, but a deep intuitive sense that this beauty is death. That the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. And I cried. I cried on and off, actually, for a couple of days. Not continuously, though at times quite deeply. I was grieving the loss of the world, so to say, feeling my heart breaking, and at the same time, elated. Though still on a conceptual level to some degree, it was an opening, an opening 
and a release. Soon after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart, I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life, light to dark to light, snowstorm to sunshine to cloud cover, changing sensations in the body, the movement and the changing sensations of the breath. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under a kind of assumed identity, the assumed solidity of our body and thoughts, quickly followed along by clinging on to the thoughts and the feelings and emotional states, all of the habitual fixations that we live with, believe, and call uh, our own, call me, call mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to experience, sense, and see more directly, clearly, and more often that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body, each with particular qualities, flavors, textures that are constantly changing in themselves on both a gross and a very subtle level. As our relationship to all of the forms, inner and outer, begins to change, the compulsive, addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, begins to lose its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change we call life begins to soften as we open our hands and heart. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to try to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of being in and with life as it is, begins to relax, open, and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. Now we're practicing impermanence. When a particular Dhamma student that I work with began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca, and the understanding that he didn't have any control over the unfolding of events. And as he expressed it, he not only saw more honestly and clearly and began to accept that his day never went just as he planned it, he also began to see and accept that his aging body was really no different than the day. He recognized that this, too, was simply unfolding, undoing, according to the conditions that he had absolutely no control over. In a practice interview one evening, he told me that he was beginning his sit each morning before going to work with forgiving his body and forgiving the day before it started. (laughs) Because in his words, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. His habit for many years had been one of aversion, primarily a stance of irritation, anger at, taking an offensive stance towards things, people, events not going his way. 
his early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of feeling that the day or his body uh, had or was going to do something wrong and he needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was coming, coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. This softening heart was also forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. Hardening against the truth that things just naturally arise, change, and pass away without end. Occasionally people have asked me, and as you may sometimes have asked yourself or others who meditate, why do you practice? And at one point, when I was asked this, uh, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is. I am practicing for my death. On one level, so that if conditions allow, I'll have the great strength and clarity of concentration and mindfulness to really be fully present at what we think of as the the big death. I think for most of us, this moment seems like it will be an extraordinary, extraordinary moment. But actually, it will just be another moment. Another moment with all of the same principles applying that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring. What's occurring in the body, the heart, and the mind. A moment like any other moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with in a fresh way. Beginner's mind, the don't know mind. A moment, in fact, that's never been experienced before. So one aspect of the big picture of practice is that I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present in and with and for this moment. But over the years, the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now has been with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways uh, the so-called self keeps recreating this assumed identity. This delusion of a separate, solid, static me. Recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing and letting go, relinquishing this again and again and again. One way that this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little deaths minute deaths, moment to moment, even just breath by breath, and in ways that we could never have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity the assumed identity of me, I, and you that's so frightening to let go of is seen through our practice more and more just as process, beginning, changing, and ending again and again, every minute, every second, through every single sense door, if we're really attentive. So, For example, what appears to be a steady, solid flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not 
as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though phenomena, phenomena happens with an ongoing continuous flow. When in reality, it's all, all beginning and ending, arising and falling away on the most minute levels very, very rapidly, second by second. And with a very profound, deep concentration and mindfulness, this can actually be known directly. The acceptance of change, the acceptance of the forming and unforming of the birth and the death is really, truly the acceptance of life and the nature of life. All aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that seem so clear and so strong and so right in any given moment. These two can change quite rapidly, as I'm sure you've noticed at times. As we learn to pay a closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experience sometimes changes into unpleasant experience, or vice versa. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes and then rapidly move into seeming needs or strong rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions which are themselves also changing moment to moment. As we learn to receive experience with more clarity and ease, we begin to see ourselves as well as others with less judgment we might begin to see that we are to still, to whatever degree, still acting out of and have acted in the past, acted out of ignorance and forgetfulness. Acted, or more, re, more realistically or more accurately, reacted out of old conditioned, habituated places of suffering many times ourselves. And so we change. We begin to meet ourselves, ourself, as well as others, with open-hearted clarity and more compassion. 13th century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. These are his words. We do not just have Buddha nature, we are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, great compassion, impartial care, love, that may include one's enemy. Probably most of us, at times, have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. When my mother was in her late 80s and 90s, early 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror, looking at ourselves and looking at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating over and over, it's so strange, it's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. Once when she was 91 and we were doing this, she said, I look older than 
everybody else in the whole world. (laughs) And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. And then she said again, it's so strange, it's so strange. Is it strange? I mean, really, is it strange? Stranger than what? (laughs) It's just life doing its thing. Life being lifey. At one point, uh, when I was teaching in Israel, one of the students gave me this poem by a, uh, an Israeli poet, Rachel Kalfi. It's called Such Tenderness. <clears throat> Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so we can withstand it all. Such beauty such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked in the mirror at your face for a long time? just focused and really looked for a while. It just keeps changing, keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? Once in a long retreat that I was sitting, I spent uh, time outside observing the grass every single day during the fall, noticing that it was losing its moisture, drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over, being quite acutely aware of this. Are we really any different than this? What is the Dharma of grass? No matter how much moisturizer we use, no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take or how much yoga we do, no matter how much good healthy food we eat, our skin dries out, our hair loses its color, Our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep, and there's nothing we can do about it. And a poem by Liesel Mueller called Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirrors reassure me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light, like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture is almost like a secret, 
with everything changing and aging and multitudes, such multitudes doing the dying. If we're really, truly inclined towards freedom, we have to give up the notion that change or even death is a catastrophe, detestable, avoidable, or strange. Our practice directs us towards learning directly, experientially, about change, the macro and micro cycling of life, and that we, our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separated out from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident and my friend was killed. It was quite amazing. One minute she was alive and driving the car and we'd had three wonderful days together. And the next moment, she was lying in the middle of the highway dying. Myself with just a few scrapes and bruises. And I was washing her dying body with water. And then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every minute, every second, I think I actually said, because now I knew that it could just end in a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times, but I've also remembered it many times. This experience, with its lucid insight into impermanence, was really a big part of what eventually guided me towards the Buddhist practices and teachings. Although in my 18-year-old self, uh, I didn't think or word it in this particular way. And it's been interesting to see how this resolve to live fully every moment, how it's unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing uh, letting go of many of the complexities and seeming necessities of what we call normal life. Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has allowed me to then be more fully with the moments of living, the process of change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, this letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice, either by conscious choice, a decision made between this or that, or simply through really being mindfully present with a very clear mindful attention and responding in whatever ways are the healthiest and most appropriate for oneself and in relationship to others which at times might result in letting go, renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging inwardly and outwardly, including recognizing and letting go of some of one's attachments, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people that we're closest to, but rather giving us the possibility of relating to them in what might be a new way. There's a Native American teaching called A Cherokee Feast of Days, and this is one small section of it, Autumn, called Autumn. Can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually 
sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. Clear and sure insight into anicca leads us towards the end of confusion and anguish and towards understanding the cause of suffering. Very surely knowing the momentariness of all appearances opens the door of insight into the conditional, impersonal nature of all things, the conditional, impersonal nature of all phenomena. In our thinking, I think most of us assume that permanence provides security. But in actuality, although change might be very difficult at times, and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and as we get to know it more deeply, Anicca can be a profound inspiration to go deeper in our practice. We may also come to realize that on one level, it's really truly a gift of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare. No change. No life. In 1985, my house burned down, burned to the ground. No one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we had arrived at my mother's house, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house had burned to the ground. My first response was denial. I said, you're kidding. (laughs) But of course, who would call a friend uh, up long distance on Christmas and make such a joke, you know? So after we finished our brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried uh, very hard for about 15 or 20 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, uh, just held me, put her arms around me and held me, asked no questions whatsoever. And then my brother and I, who was also visiting, sat down and talked. By the end of our two-hour conversation, the fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me. I didn't have any more things to bind me anymore. The spiritual path burned its way open for me, so to say. And as some of you know, In Asian countries, it's not at all unusual for people in their 50s and 60s whose family responsibilities are essentially um, finished to go out and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. So to make a long story short, about a year after that fire, I ended up going to Asia for uh, a little more than a year and a half, and I practiced quite ardently, quite diligently, and continued this way uh, upon coming back to this country. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. And a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. And from Carlos Castaneda's book, The Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. 
Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And this is a, a, a little bit of a piece from Michael Ventura, who was one of these three friends from that lunch gathering. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill, but for all of his fragility, he seemed much livelier and happier and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die. And they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll have a soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't just be an exercise. Carlos says, you give yourself a command. <clears throat> on, the, on the page, there's no, no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's that mean, one of us asked. It means you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A, a command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invoked something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who'd asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send on, send on to me. <clears throat> One passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they're filled with toughness, but because they're filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe, says Carlos. We don't grow in a straight line, but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. We begin to understand that we are intimately woven into this endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And we also begin to really, truly understand the suffering in ourself and in others, the suffering and the anguish created by trying to hold on in resisting the truth. Resisting the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. About 14 years ago, I took my mother in to live with me at my home uh, in Taos, which turned out to be the last 15 months of her life. Early one morning at the age of 92, she died in her bed. 
And within a very short time after her death, as I was sitting uh, closely and attentively with her body in her bedroom, I very clearly saw all of the tension, the accumulated tightness and anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging. I saw all of this just dissolve from her face. With the transformation in my mother's face into an exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was a very powerful teaching and inspiration for me towards deepening my practice in the here and now with a very strong sense of why wait until death for this peace and ease. Our daily practice right here in retreat and in our daily lives brings us to confront, sense, and receive the river of change and uncertainty, the river of anicca. Our continuing diligent practice is bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, and inclusive with humor, goodwill, compassion, and wisdom. As the understanding of Anicca deepens, which arises out of continuing and deepening direct experience of impermanence, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. And there's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. And closing the talk this evening with a poem written by Michael Lunig, Australian uh, poet and cartoonist. And with every poem that Michael Lunig writes, he also draws a cartoon to go with it. So I'll just describe the little cartoon that goes with this poem. It's a line drawing of a man standing, standing upright, and in one hand, his left hand, I think, he's holding a frying pan with his arms stretched straight out to the side. And in the frying pan, there's this big blob of black stuff, and there's smoke billowing out from it. And he's looking, his head is turned, and he's looking right at it with his eyes very wide open. And here's the poem that goes with this little drawing. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature. And celebrate thing, and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit for just a moment or two, quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.